Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Joining me, as always, is my frenemy, my neighbor, my colleague, my uh, probably not a co-worker, but an acquaintance, (laughs) Mr. Mark Daly. You are sitting up there in the palatial estates of Westwood Plateau here in the suburbs of Vancouver, looking down on me. I'm in my little shack next to the railway tracks. My friend, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. We're on the cusp of another weekend, not a long weekend like last weekend up here in Canada, but a weekend nonetheless, and that's always a good thing, even though it's looking a little dreary weather-wise right now. I I haven't looked at what it's going to be like over the weekend itself, but hey, it doesn't matter. It's a weekend. There's Formula One, so that's all that really that, that's all that really matters to me right now. Anyways, I get endless advice from people that are in the industry about the fact that you shouldn't ever make your podcast too regional. Meaning that hey, if you have a big, broad national or international audience, don't talk about things that are specific to your community. But rarely do we ever kick off a show without talking about the weather systems that are invading Vancouver, British Columbia. So for everyone <laughs> at home, I apologize. We had a nice weekend last. Last weekend it was the first one in a very long time we had a long weekend this weekend's looking a little bit dreary our summer has not yet arrived and hopefully it will soon so are you telling me this would not be a good time to talk about this 40 minute rant i have on the latest updates to the city of coquitlam parking bylaws is that is that a little <laughs> bit a little bit too regional a little bit too niche for this show but okay i'll i'll, I'll sneak it in at the end of the show Let, let's put it definitely that way. save it's, it save it for the end we'll have people waiting for that and if you don't know coquitlam is one of good. the big suburbs in metro vancouver and the funny thing and i've shared this on the air before but i mm. used to do a podcast that competed with daily's podcast podcast and to be fair i actually thought to be totally honest i thought i was the only canadian f1 podcast and a friend of mine broke my heart by telling me not only are you not the only canadian formula (laughs) one podcast you're not even the only formula one podcast in your specific suburb of vancouver and of course one thing led to another and we did a couple of things i i retired the other show you and i reached out had a conversation and uh everything else is history but yeah yeah it's still like the funniest story you know our our mutual fed friend victor introduced us and i remember the first time he told well oh my buddy mark is doing a formula one podcast i'm like yeah i know it's like my no, I know another guy named Mark living in Coquitlam that also has a Formula One podcast. I'm just like, this is just cannot be happening. That's kind of bizarre, but it's worked out well. And you know, I was going through the catalog now, and since we started doing it was the the, the, the tail end of 2020. I think we're we're pushing over 150 episodes together now. Isn't that insane? I don't know the exact tally, but it, it's it's so many now since we became the Marks that I, I've lost track. It's it Marks. It's, it's the amazing. Marks. Marks squared. Marks, whatever Marks squared. we want to go with. But it seems like the chemistry. The chemistry, admittedly, it 
as these things are, it took a little while to develop that chemistry. Who's going to speak when? How is the cadence going to be? What is the what is the nature of the conversation? And then we also had to determine whether there was going to be compatibility because sometimes you have two great hosts and they just don't necessarily work well together. And I think I think this has been good. If anything, we're probably a little too agreeable. I think the audience will probably <laughs> relish us disagreeing on the occasional topic, but but maybe we'll make sure that happens in the future. Yeah, I think sometimes our Canadianness shows through a little bit uh, too much, but who, who knows? Maybe it's due to the fact that, you know, well, whatever. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. We've had good chemistry. We get along well. Let's, let's not ruin it now, but who knows? Maybe if the if things blew up, that would be our, our most listened to podcast ever, but uh, all good nonetheless. But hey, lots of things to talk about this week, eh? Yeah, but first of all, I mean, you um, had a couple of things you wanted to talk off off the bat here. So you've got the schedule. So why didn't you start knocking them out? I know, first of all, there was a bit of obviously very troubling and very, very sad news uh, with what happened down in Texas this week. And I mean, you know, we don't want to get into the into some of the you know associated things with that. But I mean, another tragedy and, you know, what do you really say? I mean, it's just uh, it, it's heartbreaking. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. Our hearts go out to people of Texas and the people and and the families of all of those that were impacted by the travesty in that small community about 85 miles outside of San Antonio. I, I don't think, you know, we probably couldn't embark on a 90 minute fun, lighthearted podcast if we didn't at least acknowledge the horror yeah. of what we saw happen in Texas. And of course, that the the real the real confounding and horrifying thing about this is, you know, you and I were talking just weeks ago about what we had seen in Buffalo. And, you know, again, and our mm-hmm. hearts go to that community. So horrifying, uh, nothing but love for for Texas and the people that have been impacted by this. And mm-hmm. you know, our prayers out to all of them. And fingers crossed that we never see anything like this again. Yeah, it, it seems to happen far too often uh, these days, doesn't it? Anyways, uh, not to you know, I, I mean, where do you go from here? So let's uh, try and, and move on as graciously as uh, as possible. So let let's just try and get the the show going here by just uh, going down the driver standing in the Formula One World Championship for the year twenty twenty two. As uh, well as of last weekend, after the Spanish Grand Prix, Max Verstappen leapfrogging Charles Leclerc. On the top of the Drivers' Championship, Max with 110 points, just six points ahead of Charles. Sergio Perez, the second Red Bull driver in third. George Russell, the first Mercedes driver in fourth. Carlos Sainz is fifth. And an honorable top five mention going to Lewis Hamilton, although he is 19 points behind Carlos Sainz. So uh, the seven-time world champion has uh, a little bit of work to do to get legitimately into the top five. On the constructor side of the World Championship, Red Bull opening a bit of a gap at the top now with 195 five points compared to 169 for Ferrari, 120 for Mercedes, 50 points for McLaren, and then Alfa Romeo rounding out the top five with 39 points, which I think has been a pretty decent half dozen races for for Valtteri Bottas, for Zhu Guan Yu or Guan Yu Zhu. I always get mixed up. They seem to be changing around all the time. But anyways, with the rookie Chinese driver, I think he's uh, done a pretty good job. Hasn't struggled too much. I mean, he's had some moments. He's had some ups and downs, obviously, but uh, a pretty decent start uh, for him and a decent start to the year for Valtteri Bottas. And of course, after six races, only two drivers have won so far this year. Charles Leclerc winning in Bahrain and Australia, Max winning in Saudi, uh, in Imola and Miami, and then Spain last weekend. 
And this weekend, well, just pick any one of those 20 drivers because I think they all have an equal shot to win in Monaco. Because even though if you get out front and you can stay out front, you can basically almost dictate and and, and lead the rest of the pack around. But we've seen weirdness happen around the streets of Monte Carlo over the years. And certainly the unexpected uh, can happen. But Mark, before we get into the, the news of the week and then preview the Grand Prix a little bit later on, why don't you give everybody listening an update on our fantasy league here? So I know there was a change last weekend and I'm still, you know, I, I thought it was it was looking pretty settled, but it's it's been changing. And this is the message that I've had for weeks and weeks and weeks. It, it was just going to take a single weekend to kind of reshuffle, reorganize the, the top 10, the top 15. But Jesse H., who has absolutely been dominating the championship, has not only suffered a blow, but has fallen out of the top 10. I'm sure he's very excited about having the opportunity this weekend to regain some ground. But we saw a big shakeup. And I think a big part of that was that all those folks that had been depending on Charles Leclerc to drive their fantasy hopes suffered that big blow when he DNF last weekend. But to quickly run you through, from the UK, Thaddeus F, 1,388 points. From the US, Hannibal M, 1,384 points. In number three, Bradley P from Canada, 1,354 points. Number four, Matthew B from the US, 1,353 points. Number five, Jeffy from the UK, 1,349 points. Number six, Cameron from the UK, 1,346 points. Number seven, Roland K from the United States, 1,345. Five points. Number eight, more T, 1,336 points. Tied for eight, Aziz H, also from the UK, 1,336 points. And rounding out the top 10, Marshall W with 1,333 points. All I can say, folks, is there's an awful lot of championship left. If you are in the top 1,000, and again, we have 2,100 teams in this competition, but if you are in the top 1,000, I promise you, you still have a chance. Just make sure you keep committed to this. And I've been saying this for two months, but we are still working on some prizes for the top finishers. I promise I commit we're going to make that happen. But uh, again, we could see some surprises this weekend and that top 10 could get shuffled once again. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, well, based on what happens at Monaco, I mean, it, it really is a hard race to predict. So maybe some of these uh, drivers and, and and teams might do some unexpected things and could really shake up uh, the fantasy. So hey, before another- we get oh. started with the F1 news, by the way, yes, sir. And this is going to be the North American side of me, but I have been thoroughly enjoying the NBA playoffs. The fact that the Brooklyn Nets got bounced, I love that. The fact that the Milwaukee Bucks got bounced, I love that. All the teams that I would typically root against are out and the Golden State Warriors the team that I have decided to support has just tonight qualified for the NBA finals they knocked off the Mavericks 120 to 110 and they are going to end up playing either the Miami Heat or the Boston Celtics in the NBA finals this is the sixth time in the last eight years that the Golden State Warriors have qualified for the NBA finals which is great to see and then on the NHL side we obviously have the Oilers and the Flames they're locked at four in the third period actually just going into overtime the battle of alberta so there's been some great nba playoffs some great nhl playoff but i just had to remind everyone at home that we uh we're not necessarily f1 centric that we love all team sports just mostly sports. just mostly <laughs> just so, mostly so, <laughs> how, how many times have you seen that andrew wiggins dunk this week i mean i must have seen it at least oh. 748 times by now The fact that you brought that up made my heart flutter. The fact that you know that moment, you've seen it, you acknowledge how great it was, that was phenomenal. And 
I can actually tie this into F1 a little bit because I've always said that Lance Stroll in so many ways is the Formula One equivalent of Andrew Wiggins, that the talent is there. It's just, is the desire there? Is the hunger there? Is he in the right situation? And you look at Andrew Wiggins, he spent, what, six years in Minnesota and he put up some big numbers, but you know even reasonably talented guys are apt to do that on poor quality teams. Somebody's got to shoot the basketball, but you put him in a situation that's better structured with a ton of ball movement and a really great coaching staff and he flourishes. And you know, I hope the same for Lance Stroll, but I fear in Lance's case that time will eventually run out uh, before he can uh, show what he's truly capable. Because this is a kid that scored a podium in 17 with an atrocious Williams car, scored two podiums during the COVID uh, shortened year. So I think the talent's there. It's just is the desire there? We'll see. We'll see how many dunks Lance can uh, can can put up this weekend. But <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, but 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 you know, just going back to that Wiggins dunk. I mean, that that will be one of these iconic moments when you go back to think of like 2022. That'll be one of the moments that just sort of like stands out because it was uh, it was outstanding. It really just absolutely <laughs> phenomenal absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and right. I, I'm obviously a huge Canadian basketball fan, so for me, that was a special, special moment, but I'm sure. glad that it wasn't just me that recognized the importance, so thank you for uh, setting my heart aflutter, my friend. Well, it's, it could be kind of, uh, it would be kind of hard to ignore that one. It really was, it was a special moment. So next, well, next item, first item of news when it comes to Formula One, and this is uh, a bit troubling, and... Christian Horner, team principal at Red Bull, is predicting that as many as seven teams may have to abandon races this year just with the rising costs that we've seen in all aspects of life. It's just going to make it more and more difficult for all the teams to stay under the 111 million pound budget cap. What does that work out to? 135 million bucks or whatever it is. But that's this is really, really troubling. I mean, we, we've all seen gas go up we've seen prices go up at the grocery store basically right across the board sure we're not taking like a a a wheelbarrow full of cash down to the bakers to buy a loaf of bread and hopefully it never it never gets there but i mean at least in our lifetimes this is historic inflation you know happening in a very very short amount of time and this i find very, very troubling to hear that, and I mean, it's not surprising that it's it's impacting Formula One because they're they're obviously not a, a immune or isolated from this sort of thing. But Mark, what's what's your take on this? I mean, you're you're the guy when it comes to this sort of background, the business side of uh, of, of Formula One. So I'll let you take this one first. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic that could have a meaningful impact on the championship. And if you don't remember, one of the big objectives of Liberty was to inject cost certainty in the sport. And prior to Liberty, there was no cost cap on any of these teams. So you had some teams that would spend $500 million a year developing the car and trucking it around the globe. And you might have a team that's spending $100 million. So one of the things that they got alignment from all the teams on in 2020 with the most recent Concord agreement was this concept of a cost cap. So the cost cap basically covers the manufacturer, the design, the construction of the car. It includes freight and transiting materials. It doesn't 
include driver salaries and it doesn't include the 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 value of the contracts of your three most highly paid executives. So there are a couple of exceptions, the drivers being the biggest one. But by and large, last year the cost cap was $145 million. This year it's 140 and next year it's going to be $135 million. So on the one hand, you have the teams that are learning to operate in a world where there's restrictions on their spending. For some teams, it's not such a big deal because they weren't spending $140 million anyways. But if you're Red Bull or Mercedes, you know, you're accustomed to spending three or four or $500 million. And there was a lot of noise coming from four teams in particular last year that the cost caps weren't sufficient in a world where we were going to have sprint races. So they were saying, hey, if we're going to do sprint races, we want the cost cap to be increased. And a lot of the smaller teams were pushing back saying, no, we don't want to spend that money. We don't need to spend that money to have a couple of sprint races over the course of a championship. But a lot of the bigger teams now, once again, are saying, look, these inflationary pressures are killing us. Energy costs are skyrocketing. Freight costs, it's being reported, are five to 10 times higher now for the Formula One teams than they were 18 months ago. So that's significant when you kind of consider the fact that these teams are shipping entire mobile homes and freight all around the world so they can be ready for every single Grand Prix. So there's some significant costs there. Parts, again, you talk about these teams. They are using space age materials and metals and fabrics and machinery. There's costs and inflation has a significant impact on them. So really the messaging this last week has been that some of these teams are saying, look, the FIA has a duty of care, which is the term that Christian Horner said, they have a duty of care to be flexible with the cost cap to make sure that we can continue to operate this year. Because the fear is that a lot of the teams are inching ever closer to that $140 million cost cap already. And even if they stop developing the cars entirely, the fear is that simply trucking these vehicles around the globe for the final 16 races of the championship might put them over that threshold. So it's going to be very interesting to watch over the next six months how these teams balance one the fact that they're adjusting to a cost cap world and two how they're going to continue developing the cars and dealing with all these inflationary pressures on machinery and parts and materials and freight and shipping all at one time so i'm sure they're going to figure it out the sport is staffed with some amazing people but Ultimately, the FIA may have to relent, Formula One may have to relent, and they may have to create some exceptions to the Concord Agreement to allow for a little bit of buffer space, given the fact that we're seeing, unprecedented, just like you said, unprecedented levels of inflation over the last 12 to 24 months. Well, it hasn't gone unnoticed by by, by Formula One because uh, Ross Braun, who is the uh, managing director of motorsport for the series, has said uh, oh, just recently, I think a couple of uh, weeks ago, maybe even last month, that a solution is in the works and something will be coming. And he did have to say at the time, uh, quote, I think in the inflationary increase needs to be reviewed because when these rules were developed, inflation was relatively low and predictable, and now it's high and unpredictable. And if you look at the inflation rates that apply to the industrial enterprise like an F1 team. You've got power, you've got raw materials, you've got all the things which are proving to be quite expensive at the moment. So I think there's a solution coming on that, end quote. So there you go, because I mean, like like I was saying just now, I mean, we, we've all felt it in one way or another. I mean, every, everybody's just, uh, yeah, we're, we're all in, in a bit of a crunch. And I mean, fortunately... 
you know, m- many people are able to to live through this, although it's just you, you have to tighten your belt a little bit. But I mean, for, for those people who are already stretched financially, I mean, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a real stress and, and a real big problem. And it's just interesting to see how it's, it's so prevalent in so many different areas of society, not just from individual people and families, but to businesses and all the way up to an elite level sport like Formula One. So Hopefully, just the situation itself levels out at some point and eases off, but uh, I would be disappointed to see teams not being able to make races for those reasons, but who knows, right? (laughs) I don't really know where this is going to go. I mean, none of us really have a crystal ball, right? You know, I don't want to make this uh, an NBA-centric podcast, but $140 million might seem like an awful lot of money, but you got to consider that that $140 million involves staffing a factory of workers, office workers, sales staff, engineers, aerodynamics, designers, mechanics. It involves shipping these cars all around the world. It includes developing these cars. There's an awful lot of cost. So when you think about $140 million, that's not a ton of money. And I just pulled up the 2022-2023 projected salary cap in the NBA. The Knicks are projected next year to spend $120 million. That's their roster of, what, 12 players. The LA Lakers next year are projected to have a cap of $150 million. And those are small rosters without a great number of players. And again, I am not suggesting for a second that those NBA players don't deserve the salaries that they negotiated through their collective bargaining agreement, but I just want to reinforce that the $140 million cap that Formula One is working with or the individual teams are working with is remarkably low relative to what some of these big teams were spending even two or three years ago. Well, you know, that's just the crazy thing, right? Is that a couple of years ago, I mean, and, and I don't have any issues per se when it comes to having the, the budget cap in Formula One. I think that we've seen over the years, over the decades with teams like Red Bull and Ferrari and whoever was at the time basically spending like there was no tomorrow wasn't necessarily a good thing for the team or for, for the sport. I mean, if they could do it, that's fine. But you had teams that could literally spend their way to championships, spend their ways out of uh, out of problems. And they had uh, little or smaller teams further down down the grid that we're just basically spending enough uh, to be there. But that kind of goes back to the Bernie Ecclestone model of uh, things is like, hey, if you've got the money to be in Formula One and you can see succeed, go for it. And if you don't have the money to, or you got to have the money to be here, but you know, if you don't have the money, then see you, who cares? We, we don't need to keep you here. But you know, that, I mean, that's kind of one way of uh, looking at it, but I, I don't, didn't like seeing at times just the big gap that you had between the top spending teams and low spending teams there had to be some some happy medium there but i'm just uh, i think i'm more fascinated at how quickly this whole budget cap came in especially two years ago and the, the the new update to the concord agreement when everything was so uncertain in the that that first half of 2020 with the, the whole COVID thing, nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew how long the course of this thing was going to run. That we, we had no idea literally what was happening from day to day and day or week to week. And somehow Formula One got all the teams to agree to all the new technical regulations. They got the new Concord agreement signed. They got the new this budget cap in place. But I think it's just amazing, really, how short of a shelf life that that this this budget cap really had. I wouldn't say it's obsolete, 
But obviously that that number, that hard cap number is proving to be an issue for, I mean, like five to 10 times in the increases of cost to get these cars and all the, the bits and pieces and people from point A to point B for a race. I mean, that is staggering. I mean, can you imagine, you know, just like a five to 10 time increase just in, in something you're spending every day? I mean, we've all been feeling the crunch with the price of gas, the, the way that it's gone up over the past uh, several months, but five to 10 times for freight, that's insane. Wow. I like that point you made a couple of minutes ago as well about the Bernie era where there was this insane volatility where, you know, for him, it was just survival of the fittest that if you could spend $500 million developing your car and running your team do it and if you can't do that who cares you're out of the sport so what we used to see is you'd have these three or four teams that would dominate at the top and they would spend unlimited amounts of money the majority of which at one point came from tobacco sponsorship by the way but you would have these other teams at the bottom four or five teams and it was just absolute churn and volatility because they could never be competitive and they were exiting the sport and they were going through administration and they were going through bankruptcies somebody would come in that team would fail in two years so the valuation of the teams as a whole were non-existent because you could never compete if you weren't ferrari if you weren't uh, a mclaren i was thinking like more of that works era mercedes mclaren team if you weren't one of these big teams competing in formula one was hopeless and to that point that you had about the 2020 concord agreement the fact that the fact that liberty was able to get ferrari and and mercedes and red bull in the same room and to get them to agree to this when no team would suffer more by the cost cap at least competitively than these three teams is remarkable so they clearly went into that meeting and those discussions and were able to paint a picture of the future of formula one being much much richer from a profitability perspective if they did subscribe and if they did become invested in a cost cap era so all the kudos in the world because I think it is the right thing for the sport. It's just none of us could have predicted that we would have seen these inflationary pressures coming into 2022. Totally. And as we transition into a break here uh, in just a few moments, I just wanted to leave you with one sort of parting thought was that prior to the to, to the budget cap in the Bernie Ecclestone era, you saw big OEMs, big manufacturers like Honda, Toyota, BMW, Companies that you would think would have not only the, the, the technical know-how to run a Formula One team and be successful, but also the financial backing. And none of them, none of them uh, lasted. I mean, Honda's kind of been here and there, but I mean, to see the way that BMW came in and disappeared and basically said they're never coming back and Toyota as well. I mean, it's a bit of a mind blower, right? That, I know we've got to jump to a break, but that BMW piece... I love the way you framed that. It was like BMW came in with that partnership with Sauber and they exited the sport, like kind of walked out the door. And then they came back through the door just to remind everyone, we are never ever coming back to Formula One again. It wasn't enough for them to exit. They had to make a very clear statement that this sport is atrocious economically and it could never work for us. But that was, uh, that was, I would love to see them come back, but based on the way they exited, I don't see the, that, that reconciliation ever happening. Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of that sort of one guy that shows up to a party and kind of like, you kind of get that vibe that they're just sort of tolerating being there. And then they walk out and they come back and say, well, yeah, I was here tonight, but I didn't really enjoy it. This wasn't a good party. (laughs) I'm out of here. Not that I'm necessarily that guy, but uh, anyways, (laughs) probably a good place to park it for a break. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. 
passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And now it's time to talk about our second favorite topic of the week, because this is uh, something that you and I have been talking about uh, offline quite a bit uh, since last week, and that is the... The Red Green Bull, or as I called it last week after the Spanish Grand Prix, the the new update to the Aston Martin, which was heavily criticized for looking a lot like the RB18 as the Dead Bull, because it just did not. <laughs> they they had very opposite weekends in Barcelona. Obviously, Red Bull was way up here, and the Aston Martin's way down here. But, anyways, it's kind of interesting. But uh, Red Bull's TD Pierre Wash uh, said uh, in an interview, or not an interview, at the FIA press conference. Uh, this week, when uh, there, there, there was a lot of comparisons being made between the Aston Martin AMR22 and the uh, the RB18, he had to say, quote, I was quite surprised to see a copy. I was quite satisfied that they copied us, to be honest, because it didn't be, or because it means we did do a bad job. I think uh, for us, the main aspect is to be sure it is done within the rules. The FIA have checked, and now it looks like we have to check on our side to see if we have had any IP uh, leak. Uh, the IP is the main asset of the team. We want to make sure of that. That is what we are investigating at the moment from a personal and and engineering aspect pardon me it was quite satisfying that some other team has copied us it means our concept is not too bad end quote so now that's interesting because that is one take on it because then if you flip over to the other side and you see uh what's his name andrew green who is the 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 chief of design over at uh, at aston martin is basically saying we had two different parallel design streams for the car this year one that had a lot of downforce but was really messy which is what they've been running with and then this this other version which they unleashed at barcelona last week didn't have as as much downforce wasn't generating much downforce but it checked all the other boxes so he felt a little bit disheartened to see all these comments because this is not just something that they whipped up after miami this is like okay guys we're not going home until we we get all these updates on it it's like we basically designed a whole new car in two weeks i mean it was never going to happen so it is kind of interesting but you know that the thing is as long as there was no 
no shenanigans with stealing or copying any of Red Bull's IP. The thing is the stuff that that seven or eight people that went from Red Bull to Aston Martin, whatever they take in their head is fine. As long as they're not taking laptops, they're not taking thumb drives and things like that. All that kind of shady stuff is obviously illegal and would be, you know, deservedly uh, in a position to be punished for it. But I mean, the, the concepts that they take with them, sure, they, they can do that with the stuff they got between their ears. But uh, th- this was interesting. I mean, to hear the two different, the two head people at both Aston Martin and at Red Bull and the, you know, one who's kind of like, he's kind of flexing a little bit. Yeah, you know, we got it right. These other guys are copying us. And then Aston Martin's like, well, no, we were working on it. And it's kind of depressing that nobody recognizes that. And they just automatically think that we copied. But I mean, they kind of have that reputation anyways from the pink Mercedes. So anyways, what are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, I think this is why gardening leave is so important in the sport. And again, the... When you have 10 teams, it's a very, very small industry. And we don't see a ton of we don't see a ton of brain power leaving F1 for other championships. We see a little bit of it, but what we do see a lot of is brain power and people capital shifting from team to team. So if you've ever heard of this term gardening leave, it's designed to mitigate, which is what you just described, which is, hey, you know what? If you have somebody that is being hired away from one team to take a promotion at another team, Typically, contractually, they're going to be asked to attend to what is called a gardening leave. So, for instance, Dan Fallows last year, it was announced last June, he was going to leave Red Bull, he was going to go to Aston Martin. Presumably, from that moment until he was actually able to join them, I think it was on April 2nd, he was on gardening leave, meaning he is still a Red Bull employee, he is still being paid by Red Bull, and he can have zero communication with the Aston Martin team. But, as he's on gardening leave, he is not allowed anywhere near the Red Bull factory because they need to put as much distance between their design, their development as possible and his departure because they don't want him leaving with fresh knowledge in his head of where they are in their development cycle and their development journey. You want to put some kind of space between it. This case is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, the cars do look alarmingly alike. The side pods, the floors, the engine covers, they look alarmingly similar. Now, The FIA has, and let's be very clear here, the FIA has investigated and they have cleared Aston Martin of any wrongdoing. And in doing so, what they effectively asked Aston Martin to do is show us your work. You know, when you're in high school and you're doing a math test, it's not enough that you show the answer to the question. You need to be able to show how you arrived at that answer. And effectively, that's what teams are now required to do. So the FIA knocks on your door. They're going to say, show us your CAD designs and the dated sequences. I want to see when and where you started working on this design. And Aston Martin allegedly had been working on this design or at least had models of this design going back as far as November. So they were able to show all of that dated CAD work, gave it to the FIA. The FIA said like, okay, this looks good. Now, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. And this is something I was reading through today in the technical regulations because I am a super nerd and apparently I had nothing better to do with my time. But in 2019, if you recall, 2020, the beginning of 2020, the Racing Point team showed up with what was called the pink Mercedes. And it was a carbon copy of the 2019 Mercedes car. 
an absolute carbon copy. Nobody denied it because at that point, you could reverse engineer a competitor's car and you could do it through photography. So what was understood to have happened that year was Lawrence Stroll came down and said, hey, we need to make some big gains this year. I'm sick of your development cycle. We haven't invested in this team well enough under, under the previous ownership. We need to make a quantum leap in our development. So they used photography to emulate the 2019 Mercedes. Now, they were cleared of that because there was nothing in the technical regulations at the time saying you couldn't reverse engineer a car by photography. Where they got caught, though, was that they were using carbon copies of the brake ducts. And in 2019, you were actually allowed to buy that IP from another team and use it yourself. They bought the 2019 brakes from Mercedes, which was legal, but in the 2020 regulations, you weren't allowed to do that. So they bought the brake ducts IP in 2019, used it in their 2020 car. That's where they got their hand slap. But the fact that they reverse engineered the car was totally okay. Now in article 1733 of the current technical regulations, it's very, very clear that, and I quote, listed team components, i.e. the parts of the car that aren't standardized across the field regarding the banning of reverse engineering, banning the use of imagery, deep level scanning, or software use to figure out how to copy another design. And this is actually coming from planetf1.com, I should clarify. So what they've done in the most recent technical regulations is saying, hey, that thing that Racing Point did in 2020 by copying the 2019 Mercedes, you can't do that anymore. You can't use sonar. You can't use deep level scanning. You can't use photography. It has to be your own design. And there's going to be some similarities and engineers are going to come to the same conclusions. And that's exactly, presumably, what's happened here. Now, Christian Horner, Helmut Marco, they're very, very, very serious about continuing an internal investigation because they still have some suspicions that some IP may have ha uh, crossed hands. Um, and they're being very clear that if that's the case, they would consider that a criminal offense, effectively industrial espionage. Yeah, and and fair enough. I, I think that that's you know that that is fair enough. I mean, if somebody walked away with something, even a little bit of information, it doesn't really matter because it's it's, it's the principle, right? You either you you leave that IP that that uh, sorry intellectual property intact and undisturbed where it is, and you just uh, walk away and you go onto your gardening leave and then you go onto your new team because I think it's kind of interesting too. Like you were saying, like when they go on uh, garden leave, it's designed, it, it's intended to get like you said distance between these people and their old job because if you're out of the loop for a year yeah. that is a significant amount of time because okay you could walk out with all the stuff that you saw on your last day at red bull or ferrari or mercedes exactly. and then you go to your new job at red bull ferrari mercedes aston martin or whatever it's like oh yeah well we had all those like great ideas we were doing this we were doing that but i mean you're now six months or a year out of the loop and i mean that's an eternity in a sport of uh, formula Absolutely. one so i mean yeah, you know that. So I mean, the uh, the whole concept of uh, of gardening leave is is just fascinating. I mean, there, there there's got to got to be things like uh, non disclosure agreements and things like that as well. But I mean, where it gets really shady, of course, if uh, you know you're stealing electronic data, you're you're taking CAD files, you're taking whatever it might be, wind tunnel data, wh whatever that wh whatever shape, way, or form it is, or you're taking something down and you're trying to print off the entire set of design drawings 
friends at Staples or another, uh, you know, th- that's a direct uh, reference to uh, Spygate. When was that now? Was that 2012, 2010? Spygate? Like, oh, Spygate. Seven? Gosh. Oh, so is it that long ago? Yeah, oh, my God. Seven, eight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that was a major, major thing. I mean, the, the, that's kind of a little bit beyond the scope of uh, this discussion, like the details. But anyways. I mean, the concepts uh, remain the same. I mean, there was information taken from Ferrari or the uh, McLaren. I mean, they're all involved, uh, one guy going from the other. And I mean, basically what happened was, uh, didn't somebody's wife go down to uh, a print shop and try to print off all this stuff or something? And one of the people there thought that something a little bit shady was <laughs> was going on. It's just like, wow. But yeah, I mean, I I, I completely understand why Marco and, and Horner would want to do a full forensic investigation and make sure that that uh, that, that you didn't somebody didn't walk away with something. And uh, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens. But at least on a cursory high level view from 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 the FIA at the moment, at least uh, they've been able to prove uh, on on the Aston Martin side, that these were all their original CAD drawings that were all time stamped to specific dates. It's just like, where did that information? Where where, where did the inspiration come from? What you know? So that that's where it will come from. You know that that will ultimately spill out in the the course of the uh, in, investigation. So, all right. Well, sorry. You look like you're going to say something, or should we go on to the next story? Okay, no, that that's a big uh, shrug of the shoulders and a shake of the head. So we'll move on to the next uh, article. So we're going to stay on uh, this topic, or at least uh, with uh, with Aston Martin. And this is not really too much of a surprise. I, I kind of have a little bit of the mixed feelings about this one. And that is uh, Saudi Aramco has the option to purchase up to a 10% stake in the Aston Martin Formula One team. And that's uh, come in light of some uh, new documents that have been uh, published uh, recently. So, Mark, again, you're the you're, you're the nerd on these topics. And I know that this is a, a bit of a passionate subject for you. So you, you take it away first. This one was pretty fascinating. So obviously, for those of you that that don't know, and I, I think we've talked about it a couple of times on the show, but Aramco, Saudi Aramco, it's the state-owned uh, petroleum company in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's typically regarded as the biggest, richest company on the planet. And in the last couple of years, it began getting involved with Formula One. I think if you turn on your TV now, the F1 TV Pro app, you'll see the Aramco banners all over the track. They have a title sponsorship of a race in Jeddah. Um, They've become a principal sponsor of the sport as a whole. But during the off season, they also partnered up as a strategic partner with Aston Martin. And what was discovered this week is they effectively have an option to take a 10% stake in the Aston Martin Formula One team. And I think for people sitting at home, the question has to be that if Formula One's goal is to become sustainable and lean further and further into this concept of hybrid engines with with sustainable fuels or renewable fuel sources and renewable synthetic fuels. What is the what is the investment or why the investment from a, a major petroleum company? But according to the race.com, Aramco's quote unquote strategic partnership with Aston Martin has a very specific research and development objective, which is to quote, drive the development of highly efficient internal combustion engines, high performance, sustainable fuels, advanced lubricants, and the deployment of non-metallic materials in vehicles. So it seems at least on the surface that Saudi Aramco is a large traditional 
petroleum provider feeding many of the world's international markets that they obviously recognize that times are changing and they need to change to at least in terms of what their product assortment looks like. But it is interesting that in such a short amount of time, Aramco comes onto the surface. They become a principal strategic partner of Formula One. They become the title sponsor of a race in Jeddah. They become a strategic partner with Aston Martin. And now they even have an option to buy a stake in this team. And you have to wonder that this is probably something that Lawrence Stroll would be keen to see them exercise in the next couple of years. And if the valuation of Formula One teams do increase at the rate that certainly Liberty and owners like Lawrence Stroll would hope, uh, that they would be keen to get in on exercising that option now because that could see some explosive growth in the next five to 10 years. And again, I think Lawrence Stroll, based on some of the struggles this team has had, would probably be key to see some external capital come in and help support the, uh, the cause in Silverstone. You know, it, it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen Saudi Arabian money flowing into big, uh, high prominent um, organizations like a Formula One team because the the Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund, which is basically a sovereign wealth fund that invests uh, funds and money on behalf of the uh, the, the Saudi Arabian government, uh, purchased uh, the uh, Premier League soccer team uh, Newcastle uh, United. So that that's kind of interesting because I, I I don't know how it works when it comes to, to to rules like that. But you know, sort of a government owning a professional sports team like that. But I guess it's a bit of a uh, a workaround. So you know, a, again. It's uh, it kind of brings up that whole discussion on on, on sports washing that, uh, that that we've heard about. So I, I think that that discussion will probably stay in one one way or another. But I mean, you can understand why Lawrence would be you know eager to get big investors like that involved with the Aston Martin. I mean, after putting up hundreds of millions of dollars of his own money for the the, the road car division. And also for the Formula One team, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that would be quite an attractive uh, partner uh, for him. I mean, uh, just uh, looking at some of the numbers here on the Aston Martin Formula One team, they recorded a post-tax la- post loss of 43 million pounds in 2021. And uh, and also they, uh, let's see here, with the new factory that they're building is being funded by a 200 million pound loan that was secured at the end of uh, 2021. So some uh, big money had changing hands there. Anyway, so let's take another quick break here. And when we come back on the flip side, let's talk about Danny Ricardo and how he's letting himself down. And even the team's been saying it's not quite what we've been looking for. Anyways, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. 
And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. All right, welcome back. And yes, now it is time to talk about McLaren. Now it's time to talk about Daniel Ricardo. And I hinted at it just before the break there. And McLaren CEO Zach Brown says that Lando Norris is, well, currently has uh, an edge over his teammate Danny Ricardo, which is news that's not really news because, I mean, if anybody's been following Formula One and specifically McLaren over the last year and a bit, I think we all would have noticed that. I mean, Monza 2021, notwithstanding, Lando's always had the edge in qualifying or most of the time in qualifying and in the races. But the thing is, it's never really been... It's it's never really spell or spilled out into the, the the public realm just yet. So I mean, to to me, Zach Brown saying that things just aren't working out the way that we've uh, really ex- really wanted with it with Daniel, and uh, you know, Daniel's not happy with it either. I'm kind of parsing and paraphrasing here uh, some of the comments, but uh, basically what uh, what Zach had to say quote uh, short of uh, months and a few races, the partnership has not met his or our expectations of what we were expecting. Uh, That's an interesting kind of take. Anyways, uh, he goes on to say, furthermore, quote, I think all you can do is keep working hard as a team, keep uh, communications going, keep pushing and hope that whatever is not clicking at the moment clicks shortly, end quote. So interesting. Uh, Your take on this, Mr. H, that's, uh, I wouldn't say he's throwing him under the bus, not by a long stretch of the imagination, but I think some frustrations are starting to percolate to the surface a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway here is simply how vocal Zach Brown is becoming about this. And obviously he's not he's not offering this opinion openly. I think that he's typically responding to reporter questions, but there's this ongoing drumbeat now of questions from the media about his lack of pace and his lack of performance and the fact that he is consistently getting crushed by his teammate in practice and qualifying in the Grand Prix. And you and I talk so much about the Spanish Grand Prix and the fact that despite battling tonsillitis and being incredibly sick, Lando Norris killed him from a performance perspective in Spain and ended up in the points. I think I think this really has to start. I think the question really needs to now be a question of, of fit. And, you know, I'm going to make this a little bit personal and maybe this will connect with some of our folks at home and maybe not. But many years ago, I had a very specific sport bike and it was a great fit for me and I felt comfortable on it and I could I could drive or ride quickly. I could corner quickly. I had infinite comfort in that bike. And it wasn't the most powerful sport bike ever, but I felt incredibly capable and comfortable on that bike. And I could do some very, very, very cool things. I ended up getting a far more technical and a far more powerful bike after it. And I had that bike for years and years. And I put miles and miles and miles on that bike. And never did I ever get even close to as comfortable on that bike as I was on the previous sport bike. And even though it was significantly more powerful and it had all sorts of wizardry and gadgets and technology, it was terrible for me to ride because I never felt comfortable. And I think this is maybe what we're seeing with Ricardo, which is he was in a Red Bull that was absolutely suited to his driving style. I would also argue that maybe what we're beginning to see is that that Red Bull that he was driving in in 16, 15, 17, 18, 
2018. It was an incredibly capable car that was also helping to amplify his skill set and help to amplify his capabilities on the track. And he made that transition to Renault. It was well documented why. He needed to escape the pressure cooker that was racing next to Max. He knew Max was going to be the principal marketing tool and the primary driver on that team. He went to Renault. That was ill-advised. It wasn't a great car. It wasn't a great relationship. And he bailed after two years. He did score two podiums in that second year. He goes to McLaren and it has been a real struggle. Despite that one win, and there were some unique circumstances there, he has been significantly outperformed by his teammate. And now I'm beginning to reflect back and it's tough to say these things and it's tough for these words to come out of my mouth because Daniel is one of the most personable guys on the paddock. I love his story. I love his family. I love how grounded he is. I love how down to earth he is. I love the fact that he comes from a normal middle-class family, but you have to start to question whether the success that he had at Red Bull was really driven by the fact that one, he was comfortable in that car, but it was also just an incredibly capable car with a really solid Renault power unit. And after he left that team, he's never been partnered with a car and maybe some of his weaknesses are starting to be exposed more and more. And then the other consideration too, is he's now four years older than he was at Red Bull. And I don't know. I I think time's ticking and I'm not suggesting that he's going to lose his seat. He is under contract next year with this team. It's not known whether it's a team option. It's not known whether it's a driver option. We do expect him to be back next year, but crazier things have happened. But where he ends up after next year, I'm not certain. I think from a marketing perspective, there's possibly going to be another opportunity for him on a team-friendly one-year deal somewhere, but he significantly needs to reverse his fortunes because the performance and his pace the last year and a half has been significantly below, as Zach Brown stated, their expectations and his own expectations. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the quotes in there from from Zach, and this to me feels like it was cut and paste from 2021. And he's basically saying that uh, Daniel just isn't comfortable with the car. We're trying everything we can. We're just, uh, it's been another disappointing weekend that things just didn't work out. I'm just like, hey, you could have cut and paste this from any time in 2021, except for maybe the Monza weekend, which was was epic. And I I feel like it was uh, was a bit of a blast from the past. I'm like, I've heard this uh, story before, but it's interesting because Danny's now, what, 32? early 30s something like that right so i mean it's not like he's over the hill for by by any stretch of the imagination but i think that the the opportunities to kind of stick with like one of those top tier teams is maybe starting to dwindle because i i could see that maybe if it doesn't work out with a mclaren i I could see one of the possible landing places might be kind of like an alfa romeo or somebody like that right that that to me would seem like a, a little bit more of a, a logical landing point if he can't get this uh, sorted out with a McLaren because you, like like you were saying I I don't really feel like he's progressed in the in the last uh, year and a bit and that 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 delta between himself and Lando and I I think a lot of Lando Norris I think he's a fantastic driver I think he's very very talented but I I think the same of uh, Ricardo and 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 I I don't think that it's all. I think it's a combination of things. I, th- I think there's obviously the, the comfort thing. I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe he's not quite in the right head to head space. You know, maybe just Lando's just that naturally that little bit uh, quicker. So I, I think a, a lot of it is just kind of, you know, a, a lot of different factors uh, altogether. And I love Danny Ricardo. I, he's one of the great uh, personalities in Formula One. He's had some fantastic moments in the sport and I'd like to see him uh, succeed, but 
I just uh, after every weekend where he, he underperforms, I just kind of it just kind of seems like it's one more nail in the coffin, right? I specifically remember you and I having this conversation Monaco weekend last year, and it was the weekend where Daniel Ricardo was quoted saying, "Like, look, I am looking at Lando's telemetry, and I cannot understand how he can break so late and how he can carry so much speed into the corners. I cannot understand how he is rotating the car and getting out of that apex as quickly as he is." This was a year ago, and you know, last year it was forgivable in this sense. His entire career was principally based around a Renault power unit. His entire time at Red Bull, a Renault power unit. He moves to Renault, Renault power unit. Last year, he comes over to McLaren. It's a whole new chassis and it's a Mercedes power unit. So it's a year of adjustment for him. This year should have been a clean slate for him. It's a 2022 car. It's new to him, but it's new to everybody on the grid. He also spent a year helping to develop this car and he's been rocking the same power unit now for a year and a half. The excuses that I think a lot of us were willing to manufacture for him last year are running thin. And if I'm I'm McLaren... I cannot tolerate this for a lot longer simply because I know what that car is capable of because Lando Norris keeps showing us. And again, I want him to turn this around. I want him to figure it out. I just don't know what's left for them to do or to try to enable that to happen. And I get it. He's under contract next year. But if he finishes the year like he's performing now... I can't imagine they bring him back. They can't afford to go to their ownership, which by the way, you were talking a couple of minutes ago about the Saudi sovereign wealth fund, more than half of McLaren's owned by the Bahraini sovereign wealth fund. I can't imagine them going to their ownership and saying, hey, we're going to keep this guy, even though there's absolutely no signs of improvement. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And I think it uh, really dovetails nicely with uh, some comments that uh, Damon Hill made uh, earlier this week uh, just regarding Fernando Alonso, despite being 40 years old, doesn't show any outward signs of really dropping off on the, the, the bell curve of something you know that you would expect to see a decrease in performance in an elite uh, level uh, athlete, it, regardless of what the sport is. I mean, Fernando's still doing some pretty good things in the sport, but Damon, who's a you know TV analyst, a former Formula One World Champion, winning back in 1996 for Williams at Renault, he doesn't see Fernando moving to a top team anytime soon, if at all, for the remainder of his Formula One career, and it doesn't have to do to the fact that 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 he's you know declining in his performance as a Formula One driver. And my own personal take is that I, I think that Fernando's just burnt too many bridges in his time when he was, I guess, arguably in his prime or was, I guess, maybe regarded as one of the top drawer, top level drivers in, in Formula One. And um, I think there's just a, a lot of baggage there, a lot of broken relationships a lot of bridges that have been burned and i think that slowly but surely over over the years fernando's kind of painted himself into the corner when it comes to opportunities and 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 who knows when things uh, come to an end with the alpine is is somebody else going to want to depending on on how he's driving at the time of course is somebody going to want to offer him a contract or will that finally be the end of uh, fernando alonso in formula one I think you're absolutely right. I just don't see there being an opportunity for the reason that you described, which is if you look at his if you look at his career, it's been a career of burning bridges and 
I will never forget the fact that he signed a contract with McLaren a year before he left to go to McLaren. So he spent an entire year racing for Renault. In fact, winning a driver's championship while everybody in the sport knew he was going to depart for for McLaren. And he goes to McLaren. It's a one year. It's absolutely disastrous. It's toxic. He clashes with the leadership. He clashes with Ron Dennis. He clashes with Lewis Hamilton. And then he's gone. And then he obviously has an atrocious return to McLaren when they're partnered with Honda. I just, I don't feel like there's a lot of opportunities. And you're right that from a physical capability perspective, he's driving like he's a 30 year old, but he is 40. He turns 41 on July 29th of this year. He's not a young driver. He'll be 41 and a half going into the next season. I think, I think after his kind of temporary time away from Formula One a couple of years ago. I think, I hope he appreciates the opportunity that Alpine Renault gave him was miraculous because nobody else was going to give him that opportunity. I think there are some big questions at Alpine Renault now, which is what do you do in the future? Because they've got some very capable young drivers in their organization and they've also got Esteban Ocon and they've got Fernando Alonso. And do you want to explore a youth movement? But I think he needs to be very appreciative of the fact that he has this ride. And certainly when you talk about a big team, Red Bull's not going to do that. Mercedes isn't going to do that. Ferrari's not going to revisit the the Alonso experience that this is probably the only opportunity he's going to have in Formula One moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree, Mark. I, I just don't see him uh, doing uh, moving anywhere else. Uh, I, I think that once he's done with Alpine, I, I would be very, very surprised if he stuck around and uh, move somewhere else. Uh, I'm going to just skip a little bit ahead, just uh, looking at the time here. And uh, just before we go into the next uh, break and then kind of rework things and come back and uh, revisit a couple other topics here. But this is kind of a cool story involving another Formula One world champion. That's uh, Kimi Raikkonen, who uh, won the championship for Ferrari way back in 2007. And he's going to drive the Trackhouse Project 91 car at August 21st at Watkins Glen International uh, Road uh, Course as part of uh, Trackhouse Racing's NASCAR Cup Series. And I think that's kind of cool. Uh, So Kimi has uh, driven in uh, NASCAR before. He uh, traveled to the States way back in 2011 to drive an Xfinity Series race and a Truck Series race for Kyle Busch Motorsports at the Charlotte Motor Speedway. And uh, anyways, uh, at the time, uh, or just a couple years afterwards, I think uh, the quote here is from 2014, Kimmy said that uh, that he really liked it, and uh, he was uh, he said it was a lot of fun, and he liked to try it again sometime. So maybe we're gonna see a little bit of shake and bake with uh, Kimmy uh, this uh, this summer at uh, Watkins Glen. So kind of a cool story. Totally. And the only thing I have to add to this one is I was totally wrong when he walked into the sunset with his family at Abu Dhabi last December. I predicted we will never see this man again, that he will fade into obscurity. He will live the rest of his life with his family, drinking beer and having a good time. And I couldn't have been more wrong because he's been actively involved with managing motorsports teams. And now he's making his, uh, NASCAR Cup Series debut this coming August. He clearly still has a passion for driving and motorsport. And I think the motorsport world is better for it because it's always nice to have a charismatic, a personality-fueled individual like like Kimi Raikkonen on a grid somewhere. Oh, totally. And I, I think that his win back at Coda in what was that, 2018, 2019? 2018, yeah, his last win. Is, his last win in Formula One was definitely, I think, a, a very popular one. 
among the fans. Anyway, so let's take one final time out. We're going to come back. We've got a bunch of uh, news stories that we just want to hit on. And then we want to talk about the, the Monaco Grand Prix this weekend. So don't go away. We'll be back in uh, just a few moments. Okay, uh, welcome back. So the first story I wanted to to touch on was an article that was on FormulaOne.com uh, earlier this week, and that was by uh, Julian Palmer, who was uh, also uh, another former Formula One driver. Just talking about the whole discussion that uh, kind of popped up this week after the Spanish Grand Prix on the, the whole team orders thing at uh, at the Spanish Grand Prix between Max Verstappen and uh, and Sergio Perez and I stick by the comments I think that uh, that, that well I would have been uh, on the the, the post race show that we did on Sunday night I don't really see why there's much of an issue here I mean I you know I, I completely understand why Sergio has his point of view and uh, why he would be a little bit uh, a little bit salty let's put it that way about uh, having to, to to give way to max you know especially this early in the season when it's not like uh, max is uh, needs every single point he can get uh, to uh, you know close a gap in a championship or something like that let's just say there's a lot to be decided but you know, still, you're you're number two. I mean, does does anybody ever remember who backed up Tom Brady all, all these years? Who who was Tom Brady's number two? Or who was like the third string quarterback at the New England Patriots when they were in their 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 heyday of uh, of, of Tom? Well, it's basically every year that Tom Brady played for the New England Patriots. But you you know what I mean? I mean, especially in a team like Red Bull that you so nicely said we were just talking just now about Danny Ricardo. Everything's built around Max. The cars built around Max. The teams built around Max. The the championship and the the, the thrust of winning a championship is built around Max. The marketing's built around Max. The second guy there is basically Valtteri Bottas and at Mercedes all these years, you're there to help win a constructors championship and to support your teammate uh, as needed. And I mean, should he be in the, the the position to win a race? Then yes, I mean, let him win that race. I mean, he, if he's got a good car and he's in a, the, the the position to win, let him let let him win a, a race or two or, or there. But I mean, the bulk of it is always going to go in Max's favor until the day that Max walks away from Red Bull. I don't see that situation changing whatsoever. So I, I just kind of think it's a bit of a non-discussion uh, f- from my point of view at any rate. Yeah, and I get that there were a lot of very upset Sergio Perez fans on on Sunday who felt that Red Bull had done their their driver wrong. But in this article that you referenced on Formula1.com, Julian Palmer writes, and I quote, Teams are all about maximizing their points and having the drivers finish in a one-two position is perfect for them. So Red Bull wanted the easiest route to do it. On Sunday, that was to ensure their two drivers didn't fight each other for a race lead and potentially risk coming to blows and losing a heap of points and the championship lead. And if you recall back to 2016, we frequently saw Lewis and Nico come to blows hemorrhaging points in the championship and ultimately it didn't matter because they were so much better than the rest of the field but you and I we we talked so much about 2016 in Spain three corners into the race they come together and they both DNF simultaneously and that's the kind of thing that can happen when two racing car drivers are racing each other and again it's expected if it's drivers from two separate teams but ideally you don't want to risk that situation if it's your own driver 
drivers. And the reality is, let's be very honest, winning a World Drivers Championship for Max is important for this team. And winning the Constructors Championship is important for this team. And they were able to move an inch, a mile, a kilometer closer to achieving both of those goals with the strategy they deployed on Sunday. So again, I get it. Sergio probably felt a little bit sore. We heard it on the radio. His fans are probably upset. But in the greater good, in terms of chasing their objectives and their goals, it was the right thing to do. Totally. And when you go back and look at, uh, you know, when you make that uh, Mercedes uh, comparison, we have uh, Valtteri Bottas and Nico Rosberg. And Nico, obviously world champion in 2016, Valtteri was in that that Goldilocks zone. He was good enough to win races, but he was also just not quite quick enough to really push Lewis all the time, right? I mean, he'd still get fastest laps. He'd still get pulls. He would still win races here or there. But the thing was, and I'm never going to make that comparison between, uh, you know, um, equate uh, or, or put Nico Rosberg on the same level as Lewis Hamilton. But, I mean, in Nico's defense, in his favor, he is a world champion. He beat Lewis one season head-to-head in 2016, and he was able to win more races. But like you say, I mean, the thing was that uh, that, that relationship uh, between the two of them was toxic, and it was just pulling that team uh, you know, apart seven ways for, for, from, from, from Sunday. It was never going to work. But, I mean, he was just closer to Lewis than any of his uh, teammates before or or afterwards. And I mean, that's why I guess that this year it's a little bit interesting when you have, uh, you know, George Russell and, uh, and Lewis and George has had the better results uh, by and large so far this year. But where that situation is different is currently Lewis and Mercedes are not leading the championship. So, you know, they're kind of figuring this car out and, you know, he's six compared to George fourth, the world championship. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a different dynamic and George very much not wanting to, you know, step on people's toes and certainly, uh, playing the long game really realizing well lewis is going to be he's going to call it a career at some point he's going to get up and walk away and go and do whatever he's going to do so if if i have to kind of uh you know mind my p's and q's at the moment then that that's probably the 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 best thing to do but i just find these uh, conversations kind of interesting from from time to time when it comes to the 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 big teams because you never hear team orders you know people complaining about the fact that you know there was team orders at alfa romeo that uh ju had to move out of the way for valtteri or something like that so it it really has to do with the higher profile teams and the and the guys that are pushing for wins and for 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 championships Okay, so let oh wow, let's okay, let let's dip into the WTF basket here. <laughs> we've <laughs> talked about this guy a couple of times already tonight and I I did not think that uh, number 1 we would be talking about very much about Bernie Ecclestone at all, although his name does come up on the pod from from time to time. But I never thought that uh, I would be talking about Bernie Ecclestone getting arrested in Brazil for taking a gun onto an airplane. But hey, here you go. I mean, he had a 32 caliber firearm in his luggage when it was being x-rayed at uh, Viracopose Airport. And it was also um, undocumented, so I guess unregistered. Anyways, uh, Bernie apparently said he acknowledged that the gun was his, but he said that he didn't realize that it was in his possession at the time. His luggage was being scanned at the airport. 
Okay, so I don't know, but he was eventually uh, he was he paid bail and was released, and then uh, eventually flew onto Switzerland. But get this, ninety-one years old, checking in a gun into his uh, luggage at a, at an international airport. I just uh, I just can't even, Mark. I just can't even. It's estimated that Bernie's worth $3 billion U.S. How and why would he ever think he needed to own or carry or try to bring a handgun onto an airplane? This guy could have an army of security because presumably that's why he has the gun, right? It's for personal protection. And there have been some very high profile situations involving him and his family in the past. So I, I kind of get it that you're going to be very sensitive to to your personal security, but just hire an army of guards. Like what what possible reason or what possible world would he think it's okay to try to smuggle an unregistered gun into his luggage and bring it onto an aircraft to take to Europe, which is where I don't know. This is mind boggling and I don't have a lot to add other than my frustration that this is just pure stupidity and we're all about being human. This is just arrogance and stupidity. It's also a little bit frustrating that he was caught smuggling a gun or attempting to smuggle an illegal unregistered gun onto an airplane and he was freed and allowed to continue with his flight to me that is mind-boggling and again i don't know what the penalties are for smuggling firearms in brazil but it seems absurd that he was able to get off scot-free Oh, yeah, totally. That's, uh, like I said, that was delving into the WTF uh, basket because that is just, uh, it's just uh, a bizarre, bizarre story. Okay, well, let's talk about the Monaco Grand Prix coming up uh, this weekend. Uh, the first story that I saw was uh, comes courtesy of uh, F1.com, and this is from special contributor Chris Medland. Chris is looking at five specific storylines this week, and I think a couple of them uh, really uh, bear mentioning. The first one is, uh, number one, can Charles Leclerc end his Monaco jinx? He's had a lot of bad luck at his uh, his home track. I mean, he's he's from there. He lives there, as does basically everybody else in Formula One that uh, who you know their names, uh, drivers, team principals, etc. Anyways, uh, he. Um, it goes back to his debut with Alpha in 2018, but he had problems there when he was uh, you know, racing in Formula 2. And uh, it just has not been a kind track to him. Uh, another one is that, um, that that Chris has on his list is tough cars to tame on the streets. And it is it is amazing to watch these guys go and throw these cars around through the, 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 the streets and around that track because... You basically have Armco barriers on both sides of the road. These cars are bigger and 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 wider and longer than they've been basically ever. So that that makes it all the more impressive. And I must say, then you know, I'm not going to try comparing driving a real Formula One car to playing one on a PlayStation. But I, I actually, when I'm gaming, I hate uh, driving around Monaco because it's 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 just no fun. I mean, you're always damaging a wing or blowing off a wheel and wrecking your suspension or whatever it might be. It's just uh, it's slow. It's twisty. And, you know, and also from a spectacle point of view, I don't really find it a lot of fun to watch as a fan either. So those are a couple of things. And then also, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I actually feel I owe our audience an apology and a demonstration of humility because last year I felt like I especially spent the better part of two or three weeks building up Monaco and its importance on the calendar and its historical relevance and all of those different 
romantic themes. And I think people got excited in part because of the way that I had hard sold this race to them. And then come the Monday after the Grand Prix, there were a lot of people saying WTF Hamilton, what the hell, what the hell was that? So just to reinforce your points, I'm definitely aligned with, uh, with your thinking here. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly. I have mixed uh, feelings about it. I mean, I I recognize that you know it it has historical value. I mean, the first race there, the first uh, the first time they had a Grand Prix in Monaco was way back in 1920 time. Ayrton Senna, the legend himself, won it six times. McLaren has won um, 15 times there over the years. I mean, it it is iconic. I mean, especially with the harbor and all these, you know, the, the casino. I mean, it is an iconic uh, looking uh, track. But I mean, when it comes to racing and the opportunities to to, to overtake, I mean, there's really only one or two places to really pass. And, um, you know, we, we can hope for a safety car. We can hope for rain. And there's a, a lot of different things that uh, that can happen. And sometimes we have a, a, you know, a fascinating win. And sometimes you see somebody win that you would never expect. But unfortunately, it's become rather un unexciting over a number of years which you would expect from a tight narrow twisty circuit i mean compared to a lot of the other tracks it's only 3.34 kilometers or 2.07 miles there's 78 laps so if it's not an exciting race it can really become excruciating and i'm thinking god this thing's just never going to end so who knows it, it, it's really tough to call this one because Usually, if you get on the front row, and especially if you get on pole, you're almost a, an odds-on favorite to to win. But who knows? Bizarreness maybe livens things up. Rain maybe livens it up. What, what else could liven it up, Mark? One of the I don't know. And I was actually going to ask you that exact same thing, but I will <laughs> pivot enough. a little bit and just kind of speak to the fact that the last couple of weeks and the last couple of months, the future of Monaco has seemed possibly in in question and curiously despite the fact that bernie was a ruthless businessman and he extracted maximum value out of every stakeholder in the sport the tv networks the race organizers monaco's effectively had a free pass for its entire history meaning that they've paid nothing for this race and they've furthermore been able to control the tv broadcast itself so it's been something of a sweet de- kind of a sweet deal for the principality of of monaco but it looks like that sweet deal is coming to an end and finally they're going to have to bid on and pay for hosting a race like every other grand prix on the calendar and by all accounts that certainly ruffled some feathers within the brass in Monaco and the race organizers. But I think what's become abundantly clear to the race organizers in Monaco and the royal family is the fact that there are now ample other opportunities for Formula One, that if this doesn't work out or it can't be an equitable race for Formula One, they'll just go somewhere else. And I think for the first time, the royal family and the race organizers in Monaco have come to the realization that we're going to need to pony up to make sure that we keep this race. But furthermore, there's a growing understanding that maybe some things will need to be done to create a more compelling product on the track. And this kind of weaves back to the question that you just asked about, hey, what would it take for there to be a more exciting race in Monaco? I don't know what the answer is. I obviously hear all the problems, which is it's a tight winding traffic or track. It's very technical. The cars are bigger than they used to be. There's no overtaking. If you qualify a pole and you get a clean getaway, you're probably on the odds on favorite to win the race. Like there are lots of problems with this track. 
I just don't know what the solutions are, but I would hope that if Monaco is going to now have to pay to keep this track on the calendar, they're going to do some things to improve it. And obviously we've seen the race organizers in Australia invest tens of millions of dollars to improve that track. We saw race organizers in Abu Dhabi spend tens of millions of dollars to improve that track. Hopefully they can find a way to be creative. And again, I think they're, I think they're facing some very significant kind of blockages and challenges in terms of the infrastructure and the footprint of that city, but hopefully something can be done to improve this spectacle because simply racing in Monaco isn't enough anymore. You need to have a compelling product and hopefully there's a way that they can achieve that. Yeah, totally. And you, you stole my thunder because I was going to, uh, when you said, I, I don't know what uh, they, they can do to make it uh, better there. I mean, that the first thing that I thought was, well, the reprofiling they, they did of the track in uh, Australia, Abu Dhabi and all those great examples, because that that's about it. But I mean, being like a street circuit, there's there's not a lot that they can do. They can't put banking in on one of those corners. They can't make the track wider. They can't do this or they can't do that. So they're they're really quite, quite limited. I mean, you know, although I'm not a big fan of DRS, I mean, we, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole tonight. But I mean, they, it only has one DRS zone. And you would kind of think, well, I, I'm sure they must have, ex- uh, you know, explored that option to maybe have a second DRS zone and excuse me, in the tunnel, but perhaps that's just a little bit uh, too dangerous, you know, going around and then going, excuse me, going into the chicane at the end there. So it it really is a limited and a compelling product. That is a great way to describe it. And I I know we've maybe beat on this drum a little bit, uh, you know, maybe too much in the last uh, several weeks, but just uh, going back to you know, to 2020 and the fact that they cobbled together the 17 race season and went to places that hadn't been on the calendar for, for a number of years. I mean, prior to 2020, I never thought we'd see Imola back on the Formula One calendar. And we've been there three years on the row and we've had some we've had some good races there. I mean, obviously not for Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz and Ferrari a couple of weeks ago, but it's it's funny how you can almost be out in the wilderness with no hope of coming back, but uh, then being relevant again, and and certainly just being having that reputation or that historical link, if you want to call it that, that uh, that, that that Monaco has, it just it isn't enough. So who, who knows, right? I mean, especially it's interesting when. You have all these other tracks saying, yeah, we want to host a race. And then there's other tracks saying, yeah, we want to host a race too, but we can't afford it to do it every year. But we know that this track and this track and this track, they're kind of interested on this rotating kind of schedule that maybe we can do something every other year. So, you know, like you say, it's not just a, a slam dunk anymore. And, and and that's what makes this current landscape of Formula One very, very interesting because, you know, even as recently as as five years ago, if if races dropped off, then 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 that was it. It wasn't like anybody would pop back up to to, to replace them. It was just like, okay, well, we lost uh, Malaysia this year. Oh, okay, well, I guess we're we're down a race, and who knows? Maybe we'll get somebody for next year, but probably not. So we'll, we'll instead of like twenty races, we're gonna have nineteen. So it's very funny how that's uh, kind you of nailed uh, evolved. F one currently has an embarrassment of riches in terms of tracks hoping and wanting to host a race. And the other thing I'll just add on on Monaco is, and it's terrible, we're certainly not selling people on this race at all. So presumably viewership will be down significantly this Sunday because of you and I. 
again, I, I just, I just, our audience isn't that big and I wouldn't suggest it was, but I think the only other thing to add as well is I think prior generations, so people that maybe watched Formula One in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, their perspective and their value of Monaco is significantly different than somebody who started watching in maybe the last 10 or 15 years and have never seen a great product, but have seen great products in other tracks. So I think, you know, 30 years ago, it was a staple Bernie record recognized it was a staple because he allowed this race to happen without paying a sanctioning fee. But I think all of a sudden you have this audience now that tunes in and they're intelligent enough and they see the data and they see the social media comments and they can do direct AB comparisons and they say, this isn't great racing. This isn't particularly exciting. And maybe it's intriguing the first time you tune in just because it's cool to see the backdrop and the yachts and the buildings and you can see some of these famous corners. But maybe by the time you get to the second year, that that novelty evaporates. Totally. I mean, like, for how long can you be fascinated with how the 1% is uh, living without saying, okay, I don't need this uh, ram down my throat? And also, you know, if, if it's not an exciting race, it's like watching garbage time in a 55 to 10 football game, you know, where they, they, they've run out like all the, you know, all your starters have, they, they basically came out of the locker room after halftime wearing sweatpants and they got towels and ball caps on and they're just sitting there chillaxing on the sidelines. It's like, who really wants, wants to watch that? It's, it's not compelling. It's not exciting, but you know, at the risk of uh, not giving anybody a reason to to watch the race or to listen to us complain about it on Sunday night, I should just mention, I mean, despite all that, I mean, look at the name here. I'm just looking at the the list of repeat winners. Mentioned it just a few moments ago. Ayrton Senna won it six times. I mean, he dominated Monaco between 87 and 93, winning it six times in all those years. Graham Hill won it five times. Michael Schumacher won there five times. Alan Prost won there five times. And then you look at the names of drivers that won it three times. Sterling Moss, Jackie Stewart, Nico Rosberg, Lewis Hamilton, all three-time winner there. Two-time winners at uh, at Monaco include Fangio, Nicky Lauda, Jody Schechter, Fernando Alonso, Mark Weber. I forgot Weber won it twice. And Sebastian Vettel also won it uh, two times as well. And then you look at also just the, 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 the teams that have won their 15 wins by McLaren, 10 for Ferrari. Eight for Mercedes, so they're they're catching up uh, quickly. Red Bulls won it five times, and then uh, a lot of uh, famous uh, names of uh, teams that don't don't exist anymore, like uh, Cooper, Tyrrell, Brabham, Benetton, and Renault. They they've won it twice, but I guess uh, Renault are still uh, obviously still around in the guise of. Um, of Alpine, but just uh, going back, uh, just the, I was just looking at the tires that Pirelli's bringing the, this weekend. They're bringing their softest uh, compounds uh, to the to the to the race this weekend: C three hards, C four mediums, and the C five soft. So, who knows? I, I, you know, this is the one race out of the entire year I never predict because it can really be that unpredictable. But uh, I guess one of the moments that really stood out was, was it 2017 when Danny Ricardo went into the pits for a pit stop and Red Bull had no tires for him? He had to go back out. And then was it, la- yeah, last year when, uh, you know, Valtteri, quote unquote, I'm doing the inverted quote, comes here missing his pit box and just watching the, the mechanic and that, uh, that, the, 
know, the, the air gun just stripping that bolt and then having to take that car back to the factory. That, that was a weird one. And I felt so sorry to watch him. felt so bad for him having to retire because that was a, a, a bit of a bizarre one. But uh, anything else you want to add to, to this one, sir? No, I think that's a pretty good summary of what we can expect to see this weekend, which may be not the most compelling, interesting race. Obviously, I think qualifying is probably the most exciting part of the weekend. I I think that's usually fun, like when it's just a shootout of a super technical, uh, sophisticated, I should say sophisticated, but when you do that straight up shootout of a pretty technical track, it's interesting to see how drivers respond. Of course, the cars this year are very different than what they had here last year. So I'm very curious to see whether we see a lot of safety cars over the course of the weekend. I'm curious to see if we maybe see a red flag. I'm curious to see how they adapt and the times that they're going to put in for qualifying, whether the drivers are particularly conservative in Q1. I think there are still some interesting things to watch. And I think for me, My favorite part of the weekend is qualifying because that's just so important, more so than it is for possibly any other Grand Prix in the championship. But I'm also looking to see how drivers adapt to this track with fundamentally different cars. And we know these cars are great in a straight line, but we also know that they're far more challenging to maneuver around slow technical corners. And Monaco is full of slow technical corners. So for me, I think those are the things that I'll be watching for. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at the uh, qualifying times from uh, last year, Charles obviously uh, (laughs) had some bad luck in the race. And despite qualifying on pole, his Q3 time was a 110.346 compared to Max's uh, Q3 time of a 110.576. And then you have uh, Bottas and Carlos Sainz also coming in just uh, over 110.6. So, you know, that was quite quite the lap. And Again, I, I think that uh, he's going to be one of the storylines that everybody's going to be watching to see if he can break that curse in his own um, in, in his home race. But uh, no guarantees uh, that uh, that that he'll do so. But uh, just looking at the the final race classification from last year, Max Verstappen winning, Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris coming home second and third, and then running down the rest of the top ten, you had Sergio Perez, uh, Sebastian Vettel finishing fifth for Aston Martin. Then you had Pierre Gasly. Lewis Hamilton, seventh. Lance Stroll in the second. Aston, uh, eighth. Esteban Alcon. And then Antonio Giovinazzi, former Alfa Romeo driver, coming home to score a single point at Monaco uh, last year. And then after the race last at this time last year, Max Verstappen was re- leading the world championship with 105 points, just four points ahead of Lewis Hamilton. And uh, they were miles ahead of Lando, who was in third of the championship at that point uh, with 56 points. And then the Constructors' uh, Championship, it was dead even after uh, Monaco last year. Red Bull had 149 points, only a single point ahead of Mercedes at 148. And then you had uh, McLaren and Ferrari. And then you had Aston Martin all the way down in fifth in the World uh, Championship. Anyways, I think that is a good place to park it uh, for tonight. Uh, We will be back uh, on Sunday night to to wrap this one up and uh, see what uh, transpires uh, on the uh, around the streets of uh, Monaco on Sunday afternoon. So, on behalf of myself and Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you for joining in. Thank you to Rocky and Rishi and everybody else that was in uh, watching the live stream on YouTube tonight. Appreciate you guys uh, hanging out uh, with us uh, this evening. 
and uh, the, the the chat is always a lot of fun. Uh, love uh, looking at some of the the, the comments that uh, that uh, get put up in there. Anyways, if you want to get in touch, uh, by all means, send us a tweet at scooteryf1pod or send us an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com. And that's it. Have a great weekend, guys. Catch you again on Sunday night. Bye for now.